Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Funny Genius Foundation. I have uh, Andreas Mershon. He's a research scientist at the MIT Center for Bits and Atoms. And we're going to talk about uh, dogs that can smell cancer. So, Andreas, thank you for coming. Thank you so very much for having me. So how did you go from bits and atoms to uh, dogs that can smell cancer? Well, my uh, group that I direct at MIT is called the MIT Label-Free Research Group, which means that we do the research and afterwards we attach labels such as uh, what field it happens to be in, if any field at all. We find that uh, it kind of takes away from, from the work and it's unnecessary to worry too much about what field your work is going to be in. So uh, similarly to how the center that uh, my group is uh, housed in called the Center for Bits and Atoms, the trick uh, is that if your name means nothing, then you can do anything. At MIT, we embraced this uh, long ago, which uh, is why our departments don't have uh, names. For instance, it is not um, the physics department. It's called Course 8. So they have numbers instead of names so that people don't, uh, you know, they don't get caged in. They don't think only in terms of what they, uh, you know, the field boundaries might be. Yeah, but in the teaching of the subjects, though, you would say, I guess, physics one, or would you say instead electricity and magnetism? Or Well, sure. The, the courses, of course, have, uh, are focused. It's not everything is everything, but the wider view of nature is the, you know, the more powerful one. Nature is not divided by textbook. It's not, there's no clear boundaries between where physics stops and chemistry begins and where chemistry stops and biology begins. So uh, all these are 
really in the, mo the most powerful way to do it is to study them all at once, which is uh, what the Center for Bits and Atoms was built for. It is uh, famous for integrating all the machinery necessary to address um, energy and matter at all scales from sub nanometer, even sub angstrom, we're talking about nuclear physics here, all the way to meter scaled uh, things and all, everything in between, uh, going via chemistry, via biology, via um, uh, nanophysics and uh, various uh, other technologies that address the matter at the micro and mesoscale to all the way up to things such as 3D printing or even geoprinting, which is uh, 3D printing on a massive scale, such as whole buildings. Right. Well, tell me about the uh, the work with dogs. Where did that come from and what's the premise of it? So back in 2004, there was a paper published in the British Medical Journal that uh, described how dogs had been trained to diagnose bladder cancer. And they had been trained on a set of urine uh, from people who had been uh, also diagnosed by the hospital as having bladder cancer and others from the same hospital that had been given a clear bill of health. And this dog uh, did very well. It, did, uh, it had a 40... 1% success rate, as opposed to what the experiment would have given if the dog was just guessing, which would have been 14%. So it did about three times as well. So that was pretty astonishing to me. But what it was more astonishing is that if you looked at the details, you found that the dog actually would have done a lot better uh, than 41%, even much higher success rate, if it didn't uh, keep misidentifying one of the clean urine, the people, uh, urine from a person who was given a clean bill of health, as having been from a person with cancer. Now, the trick is that that I, I looked into it, and uh, it had become a famous case, and somebody had even written a book about it, where that person who was familiar with the study was um, basically, you know, scared. So they started getting checked out, and it was later found out that they did indeed have a very early stage of bladder cancer that wouldn't have been picked up by the hospital normally. Now, that was already very compelling. And I was thinking, well, what is it that the dogs can sense that the hospital tests cannot sense? Is it something earlier in their nose that can be trained to, to sense something even earlier than the hospital tests, which was quite astonishing. But then the, the clincher really was this, that uh, a different study showed that, again, a, a dog that had happened to be trained on uh, bladder cancer again, alerted its owner very famously. The person's no, uh, name is Dr. Claire Guest, and she is the CEO of a charity called Medical Detection Dogs in the UK. So uh, Claire Guest had this dog called Daisy, and Daisy had been trained to detect bladder cancer as part of a research uh, pro program. And he um, kept poking her in the chest, and it was found out later that the dog was alerting to a very deeply buried, um, hard to find uh, via even mammogram uh, breast cancer nodule that uh, according to her book, the doctors told her that her prognosis would have been, you know, potentially quite severe had the dog not alerted her to go early. So the dog not only here alerted to something very early on, but alerted to a cancer that it wasn't trained on. Now, the volatilums, so to speak, I mean, the, the bouquet of volatile organic compounds that fly on top or, or are produced by, as a part of the metabolic activity of the two tumors uh, are completely different. There's nothing to mine there for an analytical technique, such as the ones used in lab, where we would look at the list of molecules coming from each uh, type of cancer. We wouldn't be able to generalize because there wouldn't be nothing identical. There would be a set of molecules that is the same for every human or for every cancer. So that wouldn't really you know, be able to differentiate or, or, you know, it wouldn't be for every cancer that therefore you couldn't, you know, track it, or it would be something that uh, it would be buried in the noise. So no analytical technique would be able ever to find it because they've tried and we've been trying for 40 years to do it. And yet the dogs. What, what do you mean? There's no specific signature of volatile compounds no, that identifies cancer? Very good. Very good. Exactly what I mean. There's no specific signature of volatiles that identifies any cancer. That well, means. How, wait, wait. 
one second. Are there yeah, are there similarities, or are they wildly different? Wildly different, and they can be even wilder than you think. There's a very famous paper from 2012 called Olfactory White. It is by um, Weiss and Sobel from uh, the Rehoboth Interest Institute in Israel. So what they've shown is that you can create the same scent character, that means the same sensation in somebody's nose and brain, using completely different odorant molecules. And they showed that you can have a set of 30 where there's not a single component that's identical, and yet the thing smells the same. Similarly, you can create uh, very different smelling molecules that are shaped and, and chemically almost identical to the point where, you know, it's very difficult to explain how the hell do they smell different if it's all based on shape, etc. But that's not the point. You are correct in saying that there's nothing in the odorants, nothing in the molecules that can be found as a biomarker in the case of cancer, yet... The dogs generalize and can, they can find a pattern. And the analogy that is best, I think, here, um, visually, think of the molecules of scent that are being produced by your metabolic pathways as being the sand. And the cancer signature is like footsteps on the sand. Now, you can have different types of sand and, and you know, different types of, you know, different places in your body. The, the molecules being produced are different and the smells are different. However, the signature of cancer is being left behind. It's like an imprint that rides on all of them and yet not on none of them uh, individually. This is the same with all odor characters. So so question here, if there's a different mixture of compounds, okay, I understand. But does the mixture tend to smell the same even though it's comprised of different compounds? Or is there not even a, a signal there? Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, that's the thing. So to the dogs, to the extent that we, you know, we cannot smell anything. The, the humans cannot smell the cancer. And we've tried. And perhaps one way is to find a way to amplify the signal to the point where even humans can detect it. But currently only dogs can detect it or electronic machines that are tuned to be like dogs. But to answer your question, how it is in the how it smells indeed that we believe that the signature of cancer re is somehow written and the dogs are minding that. So we're teaching them on one type of cancer and they're learning to generalize to other types. So they must be feeling some kind of cancer, which is on a perceptual scale. It corresponds to essentially an emotional state. Think of it this way. Sadness, for instance, right? Let's describe sadness as an emotional result of having diagnosed somebody with cancer. Let's put, put it this way. Well, I can generate sadness in you by playing you a sad song by the Beatles, or I can generate sadness in you by telling you the Romeo and Juliet story by Shakespeare. In both cases, you know, a sad love song or a sad sonnet makes you sad. And if I ask you later, oh, are you sad or happy now? It would be very easy to differentiate between your state now, no matter how I got you there. So that's a similar analogy here. So how the cancer manifests itself on what kind of, on what kind of carrier it rides doesn't really matter. It matters that we've trained the dog to look for the cancer character and respond, you know, look for mindless emotional state and respond by changing its behavior. In this case, 
the dog that detects cancer has to sit in front of the of the jar and, and ignore the jars that don't have cancer and sit in front of the one that does have cancer. Or if we have all the jars being decoys, then the dog must uh, walk past all of them and sit in front of none of them. Have you tried or has anyone tried to uh, have dogs smell people that are in different emotional states and see if uh-huh. there's a different reaction or train them? Yes. When someone's good. afraid yeah. and what's yeah. happening? Yep, yep, yep. So you're very right to go there. I'm surprised you went there first. But uh, uh, yes, indeed, it is absolutely true what they say, that the dog can smell fear. In fact, even humans can smell fear. Uh, we don't tend to smell it consciously, but it, you can notice this next time you're next to somebody who's really afraid or uh, next to somebody who's uh, stressed out or chronically stressed. If you know someone you know, where you work, perhaps, where even if you pass by them at the corridor, if they're a person who's chronically stressed out, you catch it. You can smell it and it can actually affect you because their their body and everybody's body is constantly leaking odorant. That means molecules that carry the sense of scent to at least things such as dogs who, who have the receptors for them uh, that communicate our, our mental and emotional and uh, physical health states. So if you're angry or, or depressed or anxious, yes, the dog can totally tell. And we expect that machines including machines that can be included inside your smartphone, can soon start being able to tell that about you, which is a a very interesting future. It has uh, both positives and negatives about it. Well, is there a strong signal then? Have you you done a gas chromatograph on, let's say, people that are afraid or sad? And do their signatures look the same person to person or are theirs wildly different too? So we haven't done that. Uh, So I, I, I do not know how that would go. But I know that with gas chromatography, which we did include in the study that uh, triggered this uh, interview, I believe, um, with uh, GCMS, as it's called, uh, it is a very accurate technique that reduces the signal to a list of molecules. However, in the real world, when you have so many different molecules flying around as a result of people being in different environments, eating differently, you know, <laughs> putting different perfumes on, et cetera. I mean, the world is very, very wild. So GCMS being an analytical technique is not the right tool here. Uh, and nose is not an analytical tool. As we've discussed, the, the dog is essentially mining the scent character. It's similar to how you use your nose. You know, if, you, if you're smelling a a cup of coffee, you're not analyzing it. You're not saying, oh, this molecule, that molecule at this concentration, this molecule at that concentration. You're not having a list of molecules of by name and number to appear in your head. What you have is an integrated sensation that has a beginning, middle, and an end. And the second sniff is going to be different than the first sniff because your receptors are saturated and because your brain is trained to interpret things differently and your attention matters, similar to how when whenever you are perceiving something else with other senses, such as if you look at the Mona Lisa, it's a painting. You perceive it all at once. You don't go pixel by pixel. But somehow we've convinced ourselves because fragrance chemists and flavor chemists are always chemists. <laughs> I think we've convinced ourselves that uh, our noses must be also analytical tools. No, an analytical tool tells you tells you a list of ingredients. But if I give you a list of ingredients, like you know the, this much flour and this much egg and this much... If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes milk and whatnot, you do not know what that cake will smell, uh, will, will taste like. You have to taste it. So similar to smell and uh, olfaction, uh, artificial olfaction tells you what something smells of, not what it's made of. And those two things are very, very different. Well, say more about that. If you know what something is made of, that doesn't necessarily correlate oh, to how it smells. Absolutely I mean, not. Ask yourself. Why, so so where, does, where does smell come from? I've heard like deuterated chemicals with fruit flies they, they can tell it smells totally different and yeah that was just like enantiomers <laughs> smell different too right yep yep you're actually quoting one of my studies or at least perhaps uh, we definitely did some if you quote uh yes we showed that um you can train flies to 
um, to behave in such a way as they avoid uh, what, not only the, the hydrogenated or deuterated um, pairs of a compound, uh, you know, up to, to your will. You can train them one way or the other way. Uh, but you can even uh, uh, tweak the experiments. There's such, you know, they're, even though they're fruit flies and you think, oh, they're messy and, you know, it's difficult, six legs, all this stuff. The, the way that the experiments are done and the statistics are powerful enough to tweak it down to the level where you can even um, uh, claim that you're, you've trained them to avoid a certain vibrational peak in the, in the bonds. However, it is folly to, to go down this rabbit hole and start thinking in terms of uh, identifying compounds because you can do it, but the, the, the utility of it is very, very limited. Whenever we know already what we're, what we're looking for, let's say in the case of uh, doping in athletes' uh, urine, okay, that is a, a, a time when you know what you're looking for. You're looking for a specific molecule. That is where an analytical technique is appropriate. That's when you're worried about finding that one molecule. However, if you're looking for a cancer diagnosis uh, improvement upon what we have now, you're not looking for a specific molecule. That's irrelevant to your point. What you're looking is for cancer, which manifests itself in many different ways, including leaving an imprint that is diagnosable by this thing that looks at the emergent scent character much more so than it does at individual molecules. And the individual molecules might be different from human to human or, or from tissue to tissue. However, the cancer signature appears to be generalizable and mineable and quantifiable, at least in the dog's case. Now, in the case of machines that follow the dogs, the best right. we can do is that. Follow the dog's training and see if the machines can perform to the point where they become Turing equivalent. That means like in a Turing test with a, you know, the human and the ch- or chatbot, uh, here you'd uh, ask uh, the point at which a, a trained physician cannot tell the difference between which technique you used and statistically all the errors behave the same. Therefore, right. you're forced to say that it's so, equivalent. So what about an experiment where you have a rat that's healthy and, you you know, in its cage, you have an apparatus where you can collect its urine, you know, in the bedding and you look at its urine, you know, and you look at it in terms of, uh, you know, the volatile compounds and then you, you give it cancer. And then you look at how the urine changes. How sure, about doing a that, series yeah, of experiments like that? So first of all, that would be very bad for the rat. Okay, Giving cancer to the rat is not something I want to do. Uh, and it's unnecessarily cruel. Also, it wouldn't get us anywhere. So we're way past rats. We're here using human urine from uh, from very uh, properly consenting human adults who consented to having their urine collected as part of a diagnostic procedure. And uh, this is well annotated urine such that we could uh, hope to train the dogs and eventually the machines, not just on diagnosis, which is relatively easy, but on telling you the severity of cancer because that informs your treatment. And in the case of prostate cancer, it is really, truly sometimes the difference between life and death. So the... How, how do you know it wouldn't tell you anything? I mean, so far, you guys don't seem to have a signal. I and mean, I guess you're going to rely on machine learning. But like, here was another question I was going to ask you. So smell, how is it... If I, if I just have one compound, compound A, it has, let's say, a certain smell. But if I add compounds B, C, D, E, does that... The overall mixture now, does it have an overriding composite smell that is identifiable? No. Did you look at it that way? Do you looked in, in, in people's urine that have uh, cancer? And again, there's nothing, even the combination or the relative frequency. No, of the you, you can, no, no, no. Just, just Google it. It's for the last 40 years, people have seen the same pattern over and over. What we see is that you can train machine learning algorithms to mine the data after it has been reduced to a list of molecules. However, you always get to the same point. You reach about maybe 80, 85% success in clustering these data into two sets, the with and without cancer. And as soon as you open it up 
to any kind of extra data, the whole thing breaks down immediately. Because this is true. Any data set, if it's sufficiently complex, and you, you, can, you can always find it, uh, you know, a sufficiently complex key to, to cluster it exactly accurately into two. However, it, the, your key needs to be resilient to generalization. And in this case, all the analytical techniques for 40 years now have shown that you cannot find a cancer does not leave, unfortunately, does not leave a biomolecular signature that is reducible to any recipe that we can find. In fact, other... Why, why, do, you, why do you think that is? Well, because it's a cluster of diseases and it affects metabolic pathways in many different ways. And other diseases, why would you expect them to leave a single molecular signature? Very few do that, in fact. For instance, diabetes leaves, again, a complex signature in the breath that is detectable even by untrained humans. Uh, as the breath starts smelling of rotting apples. Okay, so that's diabetes, and but that's a bunch of ketones. That's Even that is not a single molecule. So it's not to be expected that a disease will have a single molecule signature. Who ordered that? That's something arbitrary. But in any case, the scent character seems to be mineable, definitely by dogs, and for many other diseases such as Parkinson's and um, diabetes, it's mineable by humans. In traditional Eastern medicine, humans are, are uh, uh, routinely still trained to diagnose by smelling urine, other excretions of the body, even tasting urine. Now, we wouldn't want to do that. I don't want to bring that kind of stuff into our medical path. In fact, all we want to do, we don't even want to bring the dogs. We want to learn from the dogs. Uh, have the grad students do it, then you don't have no, to worry about no, tasting no, me. Nope, nope, again, I'm just kidding. You're, you're always reaching for the abuse. I've used the rats, I've used the lab student, the grad. Uh, never mind, bad idea. So there's no signal. That's interesting. So I guess what's the, the only alternative is machine learning, or what do you think that the, I, I, I what's didn't the say path forward? No, I didn't say there's no signal. There's plenty of signals. You know where to look. It just doesn't come in the list in the form of a list of molecules by name and concentration. It's not that. If you're looking for that, then you're not going to find it. <laughs> People have been looking for forty years. Oh. And there's can plenty you say of, what it is then? What is it? Yeah, it, it it is an emergent pattern that you find. Go read the paper. It's uh, on open access. So we. We made sure that it's uh, nobody has to pay to read this research. So even though it's peer-reviewed, we actually paid because now in America you have the system where uh, we pay as taxpayers. We pay for the research many times, you know, by our, our taxes, and then uh, uh, then it gets published in behind a paywall. So the public has to pay again to read the results, which is unfair. In any case, we published in an open access journal. You should have read it, and it tells you exactly what we did with the AI and the and how we found the key. But of course, it's not a unique key. Anybody can do this and anybody can deploy their own AI. Similar to how the dogs don't have only one way of recognizing cancer, similar to you don't have just one way of finding the Mona Lisa. If you, you know, you can look at the top left corner, top right corner, there's many different ways of finding it. Well, for people that maybe, you know, the reading the paper is scary to them and they'd rather just learn it by, you know, via the interview. Can you uh, boil it down a little bit? So what what it is, is we are feeding um, the machine, not names of molecules, but the wiggles that come straight out of the GCMS. And once it is ported to any kind of machine, it will be just wiggles in time. The wiggles would correspond to different pads. The pads each has a receptor or at least an receptor analog. And depending on the relative amplitudes of those would create a signature. But what, what the, is key here is we're not looking for molecules. What we say is we train the machine very, very simply. We say, okay, machine, look, right now you're exposed to the thing that contains somehow the key that we want. Okay, click. And we literally, for the dog, we have an audible click. For the machine, we have, you know, the equivalent in, in, in code. Then uh, later we expose the same machine to the, the same conditions, only now we don't have the click, or if it's the dog, we don't have the click. If it's the machine, we don't mark it. And we say, this is 
the same data, the same stuff, but it doesn't have what we're looking for. So find the difference and find every which way you can tell the difference. And then we'll let it run loose uh, through a bunch of uh, annotated data so it can train itself. And then we'll let it run loose on a bunch of uh, unknown data, which was double blinded to see how well it does. So currently we have it doing as well as the dogs. However, the dogs are only doing about 75% or so uh, in their accuracy combined uh, selectivity and sensitivity. We know that other people have pushed their dogs to go all the way to 99%. So we think that it's, it's definitely doable to push it all the way up there. So the machine learning, again, you're getting, you said dogs are like in the 70 percentile range and well, that's our dogs. so far as what? Yeah, our dogs, which we only trained them here just to specifically, this whole study was funded by the Prostate Cancer Foundation. This whole thing was done in order to show that we can reach Turing equivalents. That means we can start getting the same results reflected in the machines as we're getting from the dogs, including the effects of variations in the training. That is because we want the machines to eventually be so identical to the dogs uh, and, and, you know, st- so that you can't even tell them apart. Because we do know that for every condition that has ever been tried in the last 15 years, maybe I would say maybe 20 or so conditions have been tried. Every condition that has ever been tried to be diagnosable by dog has been diagnosed by dog better than any technology has ever done it which doesn't mean that dogs are magical. It just means that this is the beginning of something. We haven't figured out how far we can push them yet. But so far, everything we've tried with the dogs has worked, including malaria, including COVID-19, including at airports where the dogs can diagnose with over 99% accuracy, and they do it in 0.4 seconds per passenger. The lo- they, they did 250 pa- uh, passengers in, I think, 45 minutes, something like this. And most of the time of this test is spent walking from passenger to passenger. That's the, the most, uh, the most uh, time-intensive uh, part of the, of the test. And this thing outperforms the PCR test and, and, uh, and get, predicts, in many cases, the PCR test a week ahead. So this is what dogs can do. Now the question is, can we uh, you know, get our machines on board and can we have it in our smartphones? So is the main thing you're working on then cancer or is it COVID or both? And, uh, it doesn't matter. Once, it doesn't matter. Once you have a nose that's widely deployed, that is inside your smartphone, that we can start training, that it can start off, you know, maybe quite rudimentary, but start growing similar to how the camera was in your smartphone. It wasn't very good right to begin with, but now look at it. Uh, it doesn't matter what disease you go after because a nose is a nose. The dogs can be trained, like I just said, for anything we've tried them. So far, they've been able to been able to train them. Eventually, we'll find the you know the ceiling there. Uh, but it's a madness to to not do this. I mean, we, the technology is there. We know that we can beat the dog already in the limit of detection. We've shown now, and many other groups, not just us, have shown that. Uh, dogs can be pushed to very, very great limits of uh, detection, and uh, they can also uh, be mimicked by machines. And all this can already fit inside your phone. It's not like the technology is very large or it requires a lot of power or any of those limitations that even maybe 10 years ago were there. They're no, not, no longer there. The connectivity. What, 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 what does that mean, fit inside your phone? Would you blow on the phone, or what kind of sensors in the phone would be used theoretically? So, to yeah, so, so that's a great question. So we're not sure, but. It kind of depends a little bit also on the legal uh, aspects of this, because consider this, your body is constantly leaking biologically relevant information. You're constantly reporting on your mental health, on your mental state, on your physical health, whether you're pregnant, what sex you're carrying, if you're pregnant, 
what what if you're if you're carrying a cancer, uh, all these things are mindable. And uh, as soon as this technology is unlocked, well, of course you should have some freedom from my COVID, right? You should be able to smell the, the bathroom I was just in and say, okay, I don't want to go in there because it smells of COVID everywhere. I better avoid this stall. However, at some point you should also have the freedom. You know, I should have the freedom from your COVID, but you should have the freedom of my medic from my medical surveillance. So this is getting quite serious. I mean, the, these data that are, your body generates. Once it's widely available that you can mine this, uh, it becomes very, very um, <laughs> an interesting future. Now, there should be new laws about this. And similarly to, to how in certain countries, you're not even allowed to take a picture without making a sound. You know, in South Korea, they're not, your phone is not allowed to make a, take a picture without making a sound because apparently they have such a big problem with people taking intimate pictures of, you know, uh, under skirts and things of people without mm-hmm. their knowledge. So they have this law. It's similar to this. Once you sniff someone, you know a lot about them. So should you be about allowed to sniff anybody without permission? I'm not sure. But to answer your question, how would it work? One idea is, yeah, that you push a button and then it takes a sniff. And maybe that it's, or maybe you set it to just sit in your pocket and sniff you in day in day out to learn your own scent. We're not sure yet, but one thing that we are sure is that this. I'm very very keen on making this go into everybody's pocket, but I'm also very keen on understanding that this is a powerful technology, and we need to have some semblance of control over it. So, as an important step towards this, what I am telling everyone is that for this to go forward, we demand we as the public and the scientists, we demand that we recognize that the body is making these data. So the copyright rests with you, the owner. So you, by contract with the cell phone company, whatever, you can sell them your data, but it's primarily yours. Similar to how they cannot take your pictures. Let's say you take a picture of your baby. They can't use that picture to create ads for you know, diapers or whatever, even though that Facebook did do that for a while. So similarly, your data is your data. So your smell data must be yours first. And then we open it up to people writing apps on top of it, running their own machine learning algorithms on top of it. And we wanted to have a grassroots adoption first. So we're not going after heavy handed disease, although there are people who want to take it straight into the medical world and we're, you know, we're helping them too. But we think that the real big impact is going to happen when people adopt it as a as a as part of their smartphone, as part of the everyday experience, you you know you upload your cat to YouTube, spending whatever ten minutes doing that. You can upload your symptoms to to a dedicated social network uh, backed by blockchain, where your data is valuable, and you might even be able to get paid for it. I mean, imagine if you the more conditions you have piled on top of each other, the more valuable your data stream is, because now you know you're compounding all your various conditions plus all the whatever medications you're on. So we're flipping the business model quite a bit here. Very good. I hope you don't uh, use it for COVID because the technology around COVID has become very totalitarian. So I would hope you use it for well, cancer or other things, you know, because I could just see it being abused unbelievably. Well, with the same exact problems would be, why do you separate COVID from cancer? Both of them are diseases. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to have as many of these devices as possible so that we know when the disease hits so we can avoid it and uh, understand how it moves and generate all these data? I wouldn't, um, I think COVID is important. I think that to to expect that we can solve the, this pandemic or the next pandemic with Q-tips up our nose and masks is, 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 is madness. That's 1521 technology, not 2021. Yeah, I agree. Well, very good. Well, Andreas, what, you mentioned the paper. Um, I'll ask you to send it to me offline if you don't mind. But uh, yeah, I will do we'll it right now. Link, we'll put a link directly to it yeah. as well. Yes, so, MIT wrote a nice write-up. Here's the link. Put the link to the real paper. And then you can also link to this one. Why did a good write-up? But that was before this paper. But it's a very right. good write-up that spent a long time. And then you should, uh, this is the MIT thing. So if you look in your chat, you should have three things. Well, last question. So, you know, where can people find out more about your work? 
Uh, well, if you Google my name, my, yeah, if you Google my name, you'll find things. Uh, you know, Google's all over it, and uh, uh, plenty of stuff by MIT, and and you know, it's uh, it's been covered. And uh, as we go forward, you know, the important thing is to tell your viewers to or your listeners that this is a future that we should all imagine, and we should demand that it is brought quickly and equitably. Which means that we should demand that we drop everything else we're doing and go after harnessing the technology we already carry. And this very intimate object that we we are literally sleeping with this object, this uh, smartphone of mine, I find it under my pillow almost every morning. So this thing is already so close to me. It already has the technology suite necessary to harness this power of another sense in it. It's already transforming itself into our face, right? We keep looking at it all day long on the smartphone. It's got eyes. It's got a mouth. It's got ears. It's time for it to have a nose because then suddenly a whole bright future opens up in front of us. I have this vision that, you know, people should should be horrified that we're trying to face pandemics with Q-tips. That's crazy. That's insane. This is 2021. We should be horrified that we have these highly invasive diagnostic procedures that require us to shove 20 inch needles into humans when the human body is already filled with holes and the human body is already communicating very accurately, everything that's wrong with it and everything that it needs. You do not need to add extra holes, especially not for diagnostics. I mean, yeah, if you have, yeah, a, makes sense. Makes sense. If you have a bullet or if you have a you know broken bone, sure, do the surgery, obviously. But we're talking about now for prostate cancer, for instance, they have to insert a 15-inch needle up your bum and then out of that needle comes some teeth and they take 14 pieces of your prostate <laughs> they drag out. I mean, it's barbaric, okay? That should not be happening. This is dangerous. It's bad. It's expensive. It's painful. And and the results are just, are you kidding me? Like, I can do this by sniffing you. Why are we poking anybody like this? So, I yeah, It makes a lot of sense. Very good. Well, good. Uh, thanks for hosting me. Have a good yeah. time. Thank you, Andre. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.